and uh, your copy of God's Word, and we're just going to walk through this passage together. Peter has, as I've mentioned over and over and over and over again, Peter is writing to a uh, group of modern churches. It wasn't just one individual church like in Ephesus or Galatia or Philippi. He is writing to a collection of churches there in modern-day Turkey, and he is writing to them about how it is that they live faithfully before the Lord in light of the culture around them. And there's all sorts of things that were going on around them in the culture, whether it was idolatry or whether it is immorality or whether it is selfishness or pride. They were facing all these things around them. And so you had a group of Christians that were saying, all right, Peter, we are living in this environment. How is it that we are faithful to God in the context we're living in? So that's what Peter is writing to. And he's writing to them about how they live faithfully. Now, You will find a lot of things in this world, but when you come to the Word of God, you find truth. Just this last week, I typed into a search bar, ways to measure success. How do we measure success? And you will come upon list after list, article after article, three ways to do this, five ways to do that, seven ways to do that, ten things to do this. These are the things you need to start today. In fact, one article, it put it like this. It gave you three ways to measure success. The first one is to measure by the performance outcome. The second step was to measure effortful pursuit of your values. And the third one said evaluating the roles you play. I read that and I thought, I don't have any clue what they're trying to explain to me. I don't have any way of understanding how it is that I know if I'm being successful or not. Well, there's a lot of metrics we use in our society of success. When we gather here this morning, we might not be pursuing all of man's success, but we have that in the mind when it comes to what it means to be successful. Well, Peter is writing here in this letter of 1 Peter, he is writing to the church to explain to the church, this is what it means to be spiritually successful. Now, there's going to be some things that we haven't seen. Nowhere in this letter do you find Peter saying what what it means to be successful in the eyes of God is to be happy or have a great job or make lots of money or have a lot of things, or take great vacations, or to be an incredible influencer on social media, or to do the things that make your dreams come true. No, Peter does not say that is what it means to be successful. What he says to be successful is a heart that is right before God. So when we end here, I want to just look at what, we're going to be in 1 Peter 5, and we're going to start in verse 6 and read down through verse 11, and I just want to put before you some steps that Peter says. It's like some, some final words that Peter's going to give them. Okay, this is how to then live successfully as a Christian. This is how to live successfully as a church in the future ahead of you. You have all of these things. We have all these students that are coming, and we're being able to minister to these students, and we're trying to tell these students, this is what you need to do to equip your for success in the future. And there's a lot of good things that we give them, whether it's education or whether it's making good decisions or having the right values, but so little do we put an emphasis on having a spiritual heart for the Lord. So we're going to look at this passage because I think what Peter is trying to address us to is he's trying to point us to if we want to have ongoing success, this is how We achieve it. So I'm going to read the entire passage in its entirety, and then we're going to step back, and we're just going to look at these these four steps that I want to pull you out of. Now, I realize we're living in a culture that everything is a hashtag, where everything is a soundbite, or everything is a phrase. So what I've tried to do this morning, I'm not very hip-hop, or I'm not very trendy, but I've tried this morning to just give you some short 
pithy phrases that summarize what Peter is going through. Hopefully something that we can take home that lodges in our minds, that, stinks, that, 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 that sinks itself into our mind. I remember a preacher a long time ago talking about following the will of God, and he says, if it's God's will, it's God's bill. And that has stuck with me all the time. So I'm trying this morning, hopefully this will be some things that maybe you're like, ah, well, that's forgettable or it's unforgettable. Hopefully it'll go one, it'll go one way or the other. So 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, this is what Peter writes. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exhaust you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I pray that God adds understanding and application to his word this morning. So as I can just imagine Peter writing to the church, and he's sitting down, he's writing this letter, he wants to give them parting words that will set them up for success in the future. And as he comes into this passage that we're going to look at this morning, I, I just pick you out four different steps that he points us to in how to be successful. The first one is this, to give up. To give up. Up. Now you may say, well, Spence, where are you getting that from? Well, if you go back up there, let your eyes go back up to verse 6. Notice how Peter then continues in this passage. It's a continuation of what he has said in the preceding verses, but he continues this passage by saying, humble yourselves. Now he is not talking to the church as a, as a congregation. He is talking to the individual. You go back to the original word, and that humble is there in the second person. Go back to grammar class, and the first person is I, the second person is you, the third person is them or they. And so he is saying, and essentially he is saying you, and it's an imperative, meaning a command. So he is writing this not just to Wellston First Baptist Church, but he is writing this to every person in this room, and he is saying, I want you to humble yourself. Well, how do we humble ourselves is the question. And I realize that some of you have heard, well, you know, humility is not thinking about, not thinking less about yourself, it's thinking less, not thinking less about yourself, but thinking about yourself less. You've heard that statement before. But I submit to you this morning that humility is the absence of pride. It's the absence of pride. If we want to talk about what it means to humble ourselves, we have to understand that we've got to put away our pride. We've got to put away our arrogance. We've got to put away those things that so easily entrap us and get us thinking that we are better than ourselves, that we can do more than we can do, or we know more than we know. And that arrogance and that pride has a way of canceling out the humility in our lives. So Peter says, give up. Humble yourselves before God because anxiety is the result of pride. Oh, we're living in a day and age that, oh, everything's anxiety. And, oh, we have this new generation. And we have this new culture. And they are just debilitated. They are crippled by anxiety. And, oh, my goodness, everybody's dealing with anxiety. May I tell you something as lovingly as possible? Anxiety is not a new condition. One time, they just called it work. At one point in time, they just called it life. Another period of time, they just called it dealing with with the circumstances you're in. I am not trying to say, I'm not trying to discredit anybody's struggle that they're facing in life, but sometimes we try to validate 
our emotions and our feelings to become truth. And so we start saying, because I feel this way, then therefore that must be true. And the reality is, is just because you feel that way doesn't make it true. And yet we're living in this day and age where anxiety is a big catchword. It is the big word. That's why he says in verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him. He understands that if you're going to be humble, if you're going to put away that pride, then you're going to have to deal with the anxiety. And that anxiety is the result of pride. What do you mean, Spence? Well, humility says, I can't. I can't control what God does. I can't control what that person does. Humility says, I can't do this by myself. Pride comes in and says, oh, yes, I can. Hide and watch. I can do whatever I want to do, and I can do however, what, however long I want to do it. And the anxiety, the anxiety then is the result of your pride trying to figure out how. So he says, humble yourselves. And he realizes when it comes to humbling yourself, you're going to have a certain amount of worry. You're going to have a certain amount of fret. You're going to have a certain amount of anxiety. So he says, cast it off on God. Kyle Eidelman put it this way. He said that idea of casting is to transfer the ownership from you to God. So in other words, he is saying when you get caught up in worry, when you get caught up in stress, when you get caught up in anxiety, when you get caught up in being fretful, transfer it to God. Here you go, God. Give it to God. Here you go. God, you've got to control this. God, you have ability over this. God, I'm going to give up trying to do it on my own, and I'm just going to give it to you. I heard a story one time about a man who was just wrecked with worry, wrecked with anxiety and stress in his life. And so some, one of his friends said, well, you know what you need to do is you need to hire somebody to do the worrying for you. So he said, well, this would be a great idea. And so he decided he'd put an advertisement out there, and he advertised, I need someone to do my worrying for me. And he, he said, I will pay you $5,000 a month if you will do my worrying for me. So he put out this advertisement, and oh, my goodness, the application just poured in, and he spent a little bit of time and sorted through those applications and finally found that person that he thought would do the best job of worrying for himself. And so he hired this man and said, okay, you're going to do my worrying. And it was great. The employer didn't have a worry in the world. He was carefree. Everything was going great until the employee started noticing towards the end of the month that the guy didn't have the $5,000. And he didn't have the money to pay him. So the employee goes to the employer and says, hey, you know what? You hired me to worry for you for $5,000 a month, but you don't have the money. What gives? And he said, I don't know. That's your problem to worry about. You, you know, sometimes we get like that with God. Sometimes we get like that with God, that we say, God, I want all the control when the decisions are easy, but when the decisions aren't easy, God, now you're supposed to be in control, and God says, wait a second, either it's me or it's not me. Either you're going to give it to me or you're not going to give it to me. I think back, <coughs> excuse me, think back to Matthew chapter 6. You may write it down there in your margin, but I think back to what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 6 on the Sermon on the Mount. He tells them in verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And then you skip down to verse 34, and he says this, Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow is anxious, or for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. You may say, well, that's what Jesus was saying. Oh, that's great. Well, then listen to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4. In Philippians chapter 4, as Paul is sitting in a prison, and he's looking, he has all these things in front of him, and death that is coming, looming on the near future. He says this, verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. Now I realize that some of you anxious warriors, you're sitting there going, well, I can't help it, it's a condition, it's a diagnosis, it, it's not my fault. And I'm just going to tell you, what do you do with this passage? Do not be anxious about anything. Anything means anything. Anything is anything is anything is anything. 
is instructing those believers, and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God is instructing us, don't be anxious about anything. Well, that's easier said than done. Yes, as long as you take ownership of all your problems. But you know, when you cast those anxieties off on God, and you give those to God and say, God, I don't know what you want to do here, but God, I'll follow you wherever you tell me to go. God, I'll do whatever you tell me to do. And you know, God, I'm getting all worried about this because my pride or my arrogance or my control is rearing its head in God instead of me being in control. God, I want you to be in control. So God, here you go. Take control of it. I yield to you. And he says, he says, verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your request be known to God. So he says, when? When you recognize this anxiety and when you give it to God, you cast it off on God, here's what God does. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Sometimes we don't have peace in this world because we haven't casted our anxieties off to God. You think about this world that we're living in, our world offers a lot of opportunities and methods to cope. And they frame this in a lot of different ways, whether it's medication or whether it's therapy or whether it's behavioral stuff. Oh, we will give you ways to cope. But the reality is, is God is the only one that gives us a source of hope. And brothers and sisters, so many times we don't give up. We don't give up the way we should because we are too busy trying to be in control. And I I just wonder if Peter says, you know what? You're never going to get up to where God wants you to be until you give up what God didn't design you to Try to control in the first place. So we need to think about in this life, if we're going to be successful as Christians, we're going to have to come to the point in our lives we give up. We give it to God and say, God, I don't know. It's yours. You got it. There's another one. Back there in 1 Peter chapter 5, there's another step for success that I want you to see, and that is to stop worrying or stop running. To stop Running. Now, where do you get this from, Spence? Well, notice he says there in verse 8, I'm back in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, he says, See, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You may say, well, Spence, nowhere in that passage does he say, stop running. No, what he does talk about is he talks about our relationship with Satan. See, he identifies what you and I already know, that Satan is not our buddy. Satan is not our friend. Satan is the enemy. So how do we, how do we resist? How do we overcome? How do we battle against the enemies in our lives? So he tells us to be sober-minded. That idea goes back to 1 Peter 1 and verse 13, where he tells us to be sober-minded. means to be self-controlled or clear-headed. He said, be be, be rational. Be understanding that you're in a battle. Every, every single one of us, when we walk in this room, we are in a battle. Some of it's a battle to stay awake. Sometimes it's a battle to pay attention. Sometimes it's a battle to just be listening to what God may want to say to us through his spirit. Sometimes it's a battle to say, you know what, I'm going to get up and I'm going to go to church. Sometimes it's a battle to say, you know what, I'm going to get in my Bible and I'm going to read God's Word. Sometimes it's a battle to say, you know what, I'm going to prioritize the things of God more than the things of me. It's a battle. It's a battle. And so Peter reminds them that in order to, in order to face this battle head on, be sober-minded, he says there, and he says to be watchful just means to be alert. So he says in this Christian life, you need to be aware, you need to be clear-headed, clear-minded, knowing that at any moment Satan is going to attack. And then what is Satan doing? What is Satan's direction? Notice it says there in verse 8, like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You know, growing up, I was always told and kind of heard that 
the idea that Satan is trying to eat you. You know, they say, and they always use this imagery, imagery of a lion, a lion attacking the poor defenseless hyena or the poor defenseless gazelle, and oh man, it's just, it's just crazy, and it just takes them out. But the word is more than that. The word there in the original talks about to destroy or to ruin over to overwhelm. It's like if, if Peter is using the imagery of the lion because something they could relate to, but he's saying the devil is not just looking for a meal. The devil is not just eating as natural instinct created by God. The devil is not looking to who survived. The devil is looking for people, for Christians, for non-Christians. He is looking for people created in the image of God, loved by God. He's looking to destroy them, to ruin them, or to overwhelm them with the struggles in their lives. You, you know, sometimes I think in my personal life, and it may be true about you as well, sometimes the best attack the devil has is to get me running so fast in life on this whole gerbil wheel of life that I don't have any time to stop and to think about God. And I'm running so fast, I'm going so fast, and I'm pursuing, pursuing. I'm trying to get the world's approval. I'm trying to get man's approval. I'm trying to get the church's approval. I'm trying to get Jaylene's approval. I'm trying to get my boys' approval. I'm trying to get my employer's approval. I'm trying to get all these people approval, and I'm going and I'm going, and Satan says, I just have to keep you going, and a lot of the things that are in the wrong directions that don't go upwards, and you know what? At the end of the day, what I have done is I've overwhelmed you. You have no time to read your Bible. You have no energy to come to church. You have no margin left to serve the God or the kingdom of God. I have got you so tired, so wore down, so put out. You got nothing to give God. I want to remind you this morning that pursuing the world's approval, it never ends. It never ends. I know that Satan try to lie to us and say, well, you know, it's just this next step. Or, or we will even say, well, you know, when I get through this season of life, it'll be different. It never ends. The approval for the world never ends. I was reminded of a story. <clears throat> the article came out August 21st, 2013. The incident actually happened a, a day or two before that. It took place over there in what is known as the Palisades backcountry in Idaho. Eastern Idaho, western Wyoming. It's around the, the Snake River Mountains just south of the famous Teton Range. And they were on some public, some federal grazing land. Some estimates say as many as 1,200. Some estimates say as many as 2,400 sheep were being grazed on this federal grazing land. And somewhere in the middle of the night, there was nobody there, obviously, because the owners were at home in their bed, but somewhere in the middle of the night, two wolves stampeded the flock. And as the wildlife service began to sort out the information, they summarized that this giant flock of sheep in the middle of the night, two wolves, stampeded the flock, and as this flock is running away, fearful for their life, they come to a, a small descent in the topography of the ground, and as they're heading down this descent, in the dark, running, scared for their lives, being chased by these two wolves, 1,200, as many as 2,400 sheep, being chased by two wolves, as they're going down this descent, a couple of the wolves trip, and a pileup ensues. And what they found the next day was a pile of sheep. 176 sheep amassed in a giant pile. Now you might assume that they were eaten by the wolves. But upon investigation, what they found was is 175 of the sheep were never touched by the wolves. They died from suffocation. 
You see, the wolves had chased them, and when they were all running in the same direction and they, the pile up began, the pile was so tight and the pile was so dense of all these, these sheep falling on top of each other that 175 of the sheep suffocated out of fear running from the wolves. Only one sheep was found to have had any kind of evidence of being eaten by the wolves. Yet the owner suffered 176 sheep dead because these wolves chased them into a frenzy. You may say, well, Spence, what does that have to do with the passage? I wonder how many times Satan gets all of us running. He gets all of us running in different directions. He gets all of us frenzied up. All of us got excited and we're going and we're going and we're going and we're spiritually suffocating to death. So you know Satan can hurt us in here and he can pile us in here. But if all we're here is for the worship of man and for the glory of ourselves, we're suffocating. And he can hurt us from one athletic field to one entertainment. He can, win, he, can, he can hurt us from one vocation to another hobby. He can hurt us back and forth socially. He can hurt us back in a community. And he knows that all he has to do is get us on the run, chasing after the wrong things. We'll wear ourselves out and we won't have any attention. We won't have any notice to realize that we're spiritually weak. So that's why I tell you, stop running. Stop running after this world's approval. Stop running after man's pleasure. Stop running after the things that you know will not bring satisfaction or peace in your life. Stop running after the things that will not last. Stop running and start realizing that you are in a battle. But he goes on. He goes on in verse 9. So he tells us, okay, so this is how you confront the battle. Here's how you deal with the battle. Notice he says in verse 9, resist him. I'm just going to summarize these next, this next verse by just saying, don't look down. I think Peter is telling us to be successful in this world, we need to give up. We need to give up, we need to stop running, and don't look down. Now what do you mean, Spence, by don't look down? Well, notice how he, Peter puts it there in verse 9. He says, resist him, firm in your faith. In other words, I can just imagine Peter sitting there saying, all right, Christian, here's what's going to happen. You're going to come to the time in your life and that you're going to get being hit by every side. Struggles at work, struggles at home, unhappiness with yourself or with your life, problems in relationships, problems in your walk with the Lord, problems here, problems there, problems there. And he said, these are not by accident. This is not by some slim chance of randomness. This is Satan trying to attack you and Satan trying to get you, not necessarily to take your salvation away because Satan knows he can't do that, but if he can overwhelm us or put us down to the point that we don't talk about Jesus, we don't show anybody who Jesus is, and we don't do anything for Jesus, he has pretty much made us ineffective. Satan knows that he cannot take your salvation, but if he can keep you from talking or living out your salvation, then he has kept you from sharing that salvation with someone else. So he says, well, how do you do it? He says, resist him firm in your faith. So here's what I picture. I picture that Peter is sitting there going, when that time comes, that battle comes, how do you address it when you don't look down at Satan? You're being mean to me. Why don't you just leave me alone? You don't look over here and say, why can't I have what Joe has? You don't look over here and say, why can't I have what Bob has? You don't look over there and say, why can't I be like them? You don't look over there and say, why can't my wife be like her? You don't go over there and say, I wish my job had that. You don't look down. You don't look around. What does it say? Firm in your faith. Well, where is that source of faith? 
says, don't look down. Don't look down. Well, Spence, what do you mean we got to look up? Yeah. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1, listen to what the writer Hebrews says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Verse 2, looking to Jesus. Where is Jesus? Jesus is in heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father. If you want to look to Jesus, you look to Jesus. And it's not going to be looking down. It's not going to be looking around. You're going to look to Jesus. So Peter comes back and he says, resist him. Hold your ground. Withstand. Oppose. He understands. Peter understands that your gaze determines your direction. Where you're looking at is where you're going to go. Playing football. And you would sit there if you were on the defense and you're one of those linebackers. I was never gifted enough to be a linebacker. I was always one of the plods on the line. But if you were gifted and you would sit there and you'd watch that running back's eyes. Because wherever his eyes went, that's where he was going to go. You hear rough stock riders in the rodeo talk about whenever you're getting ready to try to do a controlled dismount. Look, spot your landing, and that is where you're going to go. You hear the same thing in gymnastics. Spot your landing. Your gaze determines your direction. So Peter tells them, Peter says, you know what? You want to live successful in this Christian life? Keep your eyes on Christ. I realize you got all these push notifications. Ding, 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 all day long. You know you can turn those off? Well, I've got to know what's going on in the world. Says who? Well, I've got to be informed. Be informed. This world, this world is full of lost people that need Jesus. Be informed. This people need to hear about Jesus. Be informed. Sinful people are going to act like sinful people. Be informed. And be informed that your job is not to go out and to stand around the water cooler and rehash all the events that you had no control over and that you don't even know the true story about most of the times and just sit there and talk about stuff that doesn't matter. Be informed. He says your gaze determines your direction. But Peter also realizes that he is talking to a people that are full of persecution, confliction. They're struggling. There's a whole society around them that is trying to shut them up and trying to silence them. There's a whole society around them that says, we will persecute you, we will physically harm you, we will abuse you, we'll do all these things to keep you from being quiet. So he understands that he is facing a people that it's not just because they're getting too many push notifications for social media, they are being cut off from their families. They're being ridiculed at work. They're being mocked by their peers. They're being opposed by the government. He realizes that they are facing physical, real Opposition. Peter also wants them to understand that they're not the first. They're not the only. And they're not the last. See, he says that there in verse 9. He says, resist him firm in your faith, knowing the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. He said, don't think that you're the only one that's ever dealt with this. Don't think that you're the only one that's ever had to deal with this in your ongoing life. Understand you're not the first, you're not the only, and you're not the last. Just this last week um, in Bible reading, daily Bible reading, we're in the book of, we're in the book of Job. Oh. Job is sitting there, and if you know the story, and I, I don't have time to just lay it all out specifically, but Job, Job has a lot of stuff, and he loses it all very quickly. The only thing that God leaves him with is his spiritual convictions, a not-so-pleasant wife, and some very critical friends. And at one point in the story, in Job 16, Job makes a statement like this. He says, surely now God has worn me out. He has made me desolate all my company. 
He has shriveled me up, which is a witness against me, and my leanness has risen up against me. It testifies to my face. He has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. Men have gaped at me with their mouths. They have struck me insolently on the cheek. They mass themselves together against me. God gives me up to the ungodly and casts me into the hands of the wicked. I was at ease and he broke me apart. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target. His archers surround me. He slashes open my kidney and does not spare. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with breach upon breach. He runs upon me like a warrior. I have sewed sackcloth them by my skin and laid my strength in the dust. You ever feel like that sometimes? God, I've had enough. God, I, if there was an uncle button someplace, I'm going to tap and say, uncle, God, how, God, how much more should I have to deal with this? God, how, so, how much more am I going to have to endure? God, how much longer? And so the fact is, when you come to the rest of the story, Job gets, all of his friends had their chance to talk, and then comes God. Listen to what God says. This is just a small portion, but God comes in. It says in verse 1 of chapter 38, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, and I will question you and make it known to me. And then God begins to just break Job down and say, you know what? I realize that you've got a really unfortunate situation. But who, who are you to question the goodness of God? You know, a lot of times when we get in those situations, when we get in those circumstances, the doubt is not the sin. It's the arrogance and the pride in the doubt that is the sin. It's not the fact that you question God. It's your attitude in questioning God. We get in the car to go someplace and one of my boys say, Daddy, do we have enough fuel to get where we're going? You know, son, that's a good idea. Thank you for asking me. It's a whole different thing when we get in the car and that, that little boy says, Daddy, you got enough gas to get where you're going? One's going to get a sweet response. The other one's going to get the right hand of fellowship. Two different attitudes. The question is not the sin, it's the attitude of the question of the sin. So God just dresses down Job and says, Job, Job, you, you realize who you're talking to? Do you realize who you're questioning to the point that Job gets to the end of it in Job 42 and he says, I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel with not knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Then you may say, well, Spence, what does this have to do with where we're at? Brothers and sisters, so many times we are looking down at ourselves, we are looking down at other people, we we're even looking down at Satan and this world, and we're saying, I don't deserve this. I deserve better than this. I, I, I have earned more than this. We start doing all these things, and we need to stop looking down. And we're never going to be successful as Christians or as a church if all we're ever doing is looking down. Down the street. Down at other churches' numbers. Down at what other churches are doing. Down at I can't believe they do this and they do this. I can't believe down our noses in judgmental or hypocritical remarks. Down on people because they don't look like us or talk like us or act like us. And as long as we are looking down, we will not look up. So Peter comes in and says, give up. Stop running. Don't look down. And then this last one. Have FOMO. Have FOMO. I hope I'm not the only person in the room that didn't know what that was until not too long ago. FOMO is an acronym. Fear of missing out. It's a, 
terminology being used now by the hippity-hoppity next generation that's coming up and the, the idea that someone has this attitude that, you know what, the crowd is doing this. We used to, call, people of my generation called it the fad, okay? You remember that? You know, if all your friends are doing it, well, are you going to jump off a bridge if all your friends jump off the bridge? I don't know. It depends on how deep the water is. I don't know. It could be. But it's one of those things, you know, we, every, every generation has a terminology for it. They used to call it the fad, now they call it FOMO, fear of missing out. And so you have all these students out there, all this, these people coming up with this next generation, and they don't want to have all the cool people doing something that they don't get to do. Remember just two or three years ago when the fidget spinners were all the rage? Oh, everybody under the age of 15, or not just under the age, everybody had a fidget spinner. Jing, 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 jing. My boys come and say, Daddy, can I have a fidget spinner? No. Why not? You don't need a... For what? Well, it helps calm my anxiety. So does work. <laughs> That's what I, you can ask my boys. <laughs> but it's that fear of missing out. They saw all their friends have a spinach spinner, so they thought they needed to have a fidget spinner. That's what FOMO is. Spence, where do you get that from the text? I am glad you asked. Look at verse 10. Look with me at verse 10. Back, back in 1 Peter 5, verse 10, he says this, and after you have suffered a little while. So he, he's putting this out there, and he is saying suffering is real. Suffering is real. We're not going to try to deny that suffering exists. We're not going to try that suffering is not part of the future of the Christian living on faith before God. But he says, after you suffer, what is going to happen? The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself do what? Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He is reminding us that suffering comes before glory. You're not going to get the glory of God. God is not going to get the glory from your life before the suffering. And not just that, but notice he also shows us that we are restored after the trials. Now, I'm not saying redeemed. I'm not saying that somehow that your salvation has to come through a whole vetting process. What I'm telling you is, is the restored, the glorification of your body, the restoration of your dreams and your hopes and your desires and all that God has before you, it comes after trials. What do you mean, Spence? He tells us there, and after you have suffered a little while. So he says, now you can take this in a lot of different ways. Some people, some commentators will come in and say, so this little while that he's referring to is just this season of life. I prefer the idea that what he's talking about is this mortal life on this world. I stand with the idea that when he's saying, after you have suffered a little while, what is he saying? He's talking about this life. Average age expectancy of a male in this day and age is about 78, 79 years old. So I take it that the little while he's referring to is this human life. So he says, after you have suffered a little while in this life, what is going to happen? The eternal glory of Christ. <laughs> the God of all grace. What is he going to do? Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. There's going to be a lot of people that are going to live this life pursuing a lot of the things the world says are the popular things and the world says the things that matter. The world says these are what you need to have. And then you're going to get to the end of your life and you're going to realize that none of this stuff matters because none of this stuff carries into eternity. And the only thing that matters 10,000 years from now is where your relationship with Jesus Christ was today. So brothers and sisters, I think that we need to be passionate about telling people you do not want to miss out. You do not want to miss out on eternity that God has prepared for you. You don't want to miss out on the blessings, the registration, the confirmation, the strengthening, and the establishment that God has ready for you for those that are in Christ. 
Do not miss out. And yet so many times we have people that say, well, you know, I just can't live faithful before God because I just don't know. <clears throat> I don't know what he wants me to do. I don't know where he wants me to serve. So I just don't show up. I don't get up. And I never try. Oh, brothers and sisters, if we could just get one glimpse of what it was like for eternity, imagine what that would do to our todays and our tomorrows. If we just had the fear of missing out, I don't want to get to heaven with regrets. I don't want to get to heaven with woulda, coulda, shouldas. I don't want to get with, to heaven with saying, I would like to have those back. I would like to have a do-overs. I want to get to heaven and say, you know what? I have given everything that I had to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and there is nothing that I regret. There is nothing I'd go back and do. There is nothing that I would leave behind because I've given it all to him. We see the suffering before the glory. We see the restoration after the trials and this whole future that is in front of us. Notice what it says in verse 11. It says to him be the dominion forever and ever. Not to the church be the dominion and dominion forever and ever. Not to Spence be the dominion forever and ever. To him. Who is the him? He's talking about Jesus Christ. He's reminding us that our eternity is dominated by Jesus Christ. So you want to know what the next fad is? The next trend, Jesus. Well, when's that fad going to happen? I'm going to tell you, it's going to happen when you hear the trumpet, when you hear the cry of the archangel, when the Lord himself appears in the cloud and he descends. Oh, brothers and sisters, that's going to be better than a fidget spinner. That's going to be better than a face mask or a vax mean, the clot shot, whatever you got. It's going to be better than any of that stuff because you are now going to be on team Jesus forever. He says, have that fear of missing out. Because you know the eternity is dominated by who Jesus is. And yet we're living in a day and age that quite honestly, we got so many voices in our head pulling us in so many other directions that we have a hard time keeping our mind on Jesus. I was amazed just this last week as the verdict was read about the young man in the written house, written hour, young man in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And then 2,100 miles away, if you were to drive it, it would take you over 26 hours in Portland, Oregon. And they decided to start rioting because of the verdict 2,100 miles away. And then we have people that are divided all over the place. Divided over what we should be doing. Divided over where we should be going. And even in the church, there is a certain number of battles and questions. What do we do with the vaccine? What do we do with the mandate? What do we do with people's health? What do we do in light of the world that we're in? And this isn't the first time the questions have come to the church. It was the 1800s. You know, in the 1860s was the Civil War, but in the early 1800s, there was a hymn that was written for the Methodist church. And the words were not that memorable, but the, the tune was very memorable. And yet, during the early part of the 1800s, this, tune kinda, this, this, this hymn kind of took fire in the Methodist church. And then you got up to the 1860s when the start of the Civil War and you had different soldiers from different sides of the military that would then take this tune, insert their own words and their own lyrics to, to kind of be a battle cry for their own side. In the midst of this, there was a Methodist preacher, a man by the name of James Freeman Clark. And he suggested to a poet at that time by the name of Julia Ward Howe, he said to her, you know what, we need to have we need to have a hymn that brings everybody's attention back to where it needs to be. The North is using this hymn to promote their side. The South is using this hymn to promote their side. 
The church is divided on whether or not they're going to support the north or the south. We need to have a hymn that brings us back to center. So it was just this last week, November the 19th, back in 1862, that she sat down and she wrote these lyrics. She didn't put a title to the song. She actually took the song that she had written, the lyrics that she put to this tune, sold it to the Atlantic Monthly for $5, which they turned around, then printed in their periodical, and they put the title of it called The Battle Hymn of the Republic. In page 633 of our hymnals, you will find this same hymn. The, the name has changed to my eyes. I've seen the glory, but the words are still relevant. Let me read, 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 read. Let me read you a couple. Let me read you. Let me read you a couple of these stanzas. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the faithful lighting of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. But then listen to verse 3. He has sounded forth the trumpet that shall never sound retreat. He is sifting out the hearts of men before his judgment seat. Oh, be swift, my soul, to answer him. Be jubilant, my feet. Our God is marching in the beauty of the lilies, Christ was born across the sea with a glory in his bosom that transfigures you and me. As he died to make men holy, let us live to make men free. While God is marching on, he is coming to the glory of the morning of the wave. He is wisdom to the mighty. He is honor to the brave. So the world shall be his footstool and the soul of wrong his slave. Our God is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Our God is marching on. Church, too often we take our eyes off what we are here to do. And it's not to argue about social events. It is not to be divided about cultural norms. Our mission as the church is to advance the kingdom of God to chase darkness, to tell people that our Savior lives, to give them hope, not cope. We give them hope and to tell people this is what it means to be saved and this is what it means to be a success in the eyes of God is not to be on the right side of history, but to be on the right side of the kingdom of God. So Peter tells them, Peter says, have this FOMO. Understand that when you get to heaven, God's not going to ask Republican, Democrat. He's not going to ask Pepsi or Coke. He's not going to say Ford or Chevy. <laughs> and he's not going to say OU or OSU. He's going to say saved or lost. And church, let us be that church that points people in that direction. So how do we do that? How do we do that? I, my time is gone. Let me just quickly run through this. How do we do this? We stop. Don't yield. Stop. How many stop signs do you come to and you get up there and you're just like, you know, just the coast through it. I mean, Brad can, Brad can tell, tell us stories after stories of stories of watching people. They come up and then they're looking like they're going to do it all. And then they get right to that moment where they're getting ready to stop. They're like, eh, it'll be fine. And they just, Poof. But when God tells us to stop and to turn and repent and confess, we got to stop. We don't just slow down and say, okay, God, I'm going to do better. Okay, God, I'll try harder. Okay, God, you know, I shouldn't do that as often. Okay, God, you know what? Get off my back. I'll be better next time. We stop. We turn. We confess. We repent before God. We don't yield. We stop. Maybe this morning you're in this position. There's sin in your life that you know that God is dealing with you in. 
And you comfort yourself by saying, you know, I just, I just won't do it as often. Or I'll try harder next time. And brothers and sisters, friend, God is saying stop. Don't slow down. Don't yield. Stop. And church, I would say by extension what Peter is telling us, we're looking at all this division out there. We're looking at all these pressures from the outside this church saying you need to be this and you need to talk about this and you need to act like this and you need to stop. If we're not leading people to the Lord, then we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. Stop. Second thing I want to challenge you with is to hurt in the right places. To hurt in the right places. You may say, well, Spence, what does that mean? You talk to people all the time. You can sit there at that door and you can hear people, oh, you know what, I've just had a really rough week and this and that. And especially when you get older and things don't work like they used to <laughs> and things hurt places you didn't realize you had hurt and you had all these things and, and you hear all these people just labored down, wearied down, burdened down by the, 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 the source of life and they're hurting and they're struggling and all these things. And I would challenge you, are you hurting in the right spots? Do your knees hurt from being in prayer? Does your neck hurt from looking to God? Does your heart hurt from seeing the effect of sin and the destiny of the lost around you? Do your eyes hurt from crying for people to be saved or people to turn from their sin and to turn to Jesus? Do your hands hurt from serving the Lord and doing the work that God has called us to? Does your back hurt from carrying your brother's burdens and serving the one another's in the church? Do you hurt in the right places? Sometimes your thumbs hurt because you're texting too much. Sometimes your eyes hurt because all you've done is just sit there and stare at a screen. Sometimes your mouth hurts because all you've done is gossip and criticize and cut people down. Sometimes your attitude hurts because all you've done is be judgmental and look down upon people. Do you hurt in the right places in this last one? Leave a legacy of faith. Leave a legacy of faith. Every single one of us are leaving a legacy. We were talking about this last Friday at the men's Bible study that Corey is putting on at 6 a.m. Every Friday morning, we meet right here in this fellowship hall, and we have a Bible study, and it came up this last Friday morning about, <coughs> about legacy, about what it is that we're living for. And it's one of those things that every single one of us are living a legacy. And, and it was said about, just think about if a stranger was going to write your biography, and what would they say about you? Would they say the things that last or would they say the things that are temporal? Every single one of us leaves a legacy. Are we leaving a legacy that points to Jesus? Let me read this last poem to you and then we'll be done. We think about this spiritual battle. We think about these things that are going on around us. It might be helpful for us to remind us whose team we're on. And as I was thinking about this, this poem came to mind. The author is unknown, so I can't give the credit where the credit is due, but this is what the person writes. I'm a soldier in the army of God. The Lord Jesus Christ is my commanding officer. The Holy Scripture is my code of conduct. Faith, prayer, and the Word are my weapons of warfare. I have been taught by the Holy Spirit, trained by experience, tried by adversity, and tested by fire. I'm a volunteer in this army, and I am enlisted for eternity. I will not get out, sell out, be talked out, or pushed out. I am faithful, reliable, capable, and dependable. If God needs me, I am there. I'm a soldier. I'm not a baby. I don't need to be pampered, petted, primed up, pumped up, picked up, or pepped up. I am a soldier. 
No one has to call me, remind me, write me, visit me, entice me, or lure me. I'm a soldier. I'm not a wimp. I'm in my place, saluting my king, obeying his orders, praising his name, and building his kingdom. No one has to send me flowers, gifts, foods, cards, or candy, or give me handouts. I do not need to be cuddled, cradled, cared for, or catered to. I am committed. I cannot have my feelings hurt bad enough to turn me around. I cannot be discouraged enough to turn me aside. I cannot lose enough to cause me to quit. When Jesus called me into this army, I had nothing. And if I end up with nothing, I still come out ahead. I will win. My God has and will continue to supply all of my needs. I am more than a conqueror. I will always triumph. I can do all things through Christ. The devil cannot defeat me. People cannot disillusion me. Weather cannot weary me. Sickness cannot stop me. Battles cannot beat me. Money cannot buy me. Governments cannot silence me. And hell cannot handle me. I'm a soldier. Even death cannot destroy me. For my commander calls me from his battlefield, he will promote me to captain and allow me to rule with him. I am a soldier in the army of God and I'm marching, claiming victory. I will not give up. I will not turn around. I am a soldier marching heaven bound. Here I am. Here I stand. Will you stand with me? Bow your heads with me.